Welcome to Biblical Sexuality Lesson 3. We are calling this one egalitarianism versus complementarianism. We will define those shortly. I want to show you a picture first to explain why we're having to write these lessons. This is from a British news article. And this says, transgender man gives birth to non-binary partner's baby with female sperm. Transgender man gives birth to non-binary partner's baby with female sperm donor. So everything in that sentence, which is from the UK website Daily Mirror, and there is the couple right there, uh, everything about that mocks God. Everything about that is delusional. Number one, men don't give birth. Number two, there's no such thing as a non-binary. If you want to destroy the binary, then why are you married to a transgender man? Number three, women don't produce sperm. This is a British couple. So if anybody ever wanted to get vengeance on the evil colonial Brits, there's your vengeance because this is their culture now. This is also evidence that a great delusion has set upon humanity. When this is, this is journalism today. So let me give you the interpretation. Two lesbians got pregnant with some guy's sperm. That's how this shakes out. Two lesbians, one got pregnant with a man's donor sperm. Because there's no such thing as female sperm. There's no such thing as a transgender man. There's only delusion. So I don't do this to mock them. They need Jesus. But this is common. Your college kids, this is normal to them. Middle school kids, there's nothing wrong here. And journalists are helping to feed this. This delusion was birthed over some alcohol, some insecurity, a demon, and an academic. And now it's propagated through something called gender studies. It's a delusion. God has given us over to a working delusion. And I apologize for any immigrant or exchange student who came to this nation or anywhere in the West to get an education when this is what's being shoved down your throat at the university. Because this is crazy. So we had to write these, these lessons on biblical sexuality because God's word is forever settled and true. Now, the other thing I don't appreciate is that now everybody acts like we've always believed that this is normal. So it's a whole cultural gaslighting where if you disagree with this, they ask you, what, have you been living under a rock? You think, no, what have you been smoking the last three years? This isn't normal, never has been, never will be. So let's talk about these lessons. Biblical sexuality lesson three, egalitarianism versus complementarianism. Any study of biblical sexuality must include an evaluation of gender roles and thus the Christian doctrines of egalitarianism and complementarianism. And I do admit that I could probably make 10 lessons out of this topic alone and kind of do it some justice. So this is going to be a brief overview. I may end up producing more questions than I have answers. Most of us in here are very biblically grounded and conservative in our ideology and doctrine. So this isn't going to be controversial. But even within most of evangelicalism, a lot of what I have to say today is controversial. And I think that's crazy as well. But we'll just walk this out together. A full debate and investigation into this doctrine is far beyond the scope of this lone lesson. So let's define egalitarianism. This is the belief or doctrine that all people are equal and should be treated accordingly. And to this, the Bible agrees. We call it equal treatment under the law. Where all men are created equal. Now we can parse that and say, well, technically we're not created equal because you have abilities I don't. 
You have organs, I don't. You have skin color, I don't. We're not equal, but for the sake of arguments, I get it. We're all equal. We want equality under the law. We all agree on that. That is the philosophical or sociological doctrine of egalitarianism. Everybody's created equal and we should be treated accordingly. Yes, if you break the law, you should be treated according to how the law treats those that break the law. To this, the Bible agrees, but when used theologically, the term denotes that there are no gender distinctions when it comes to spiritual leadership. Some egalitarianists go so far as to teach that gender roles and gender distinctions are a result of the fall, but through redemption, Christ now eliminates all such differences. That is a very leftist theological doctrine that goes so far as to say gender roles are part of the fall. Now that we're redeemed, there are no gender roles between male and female. Now you can see how that is already woke. That is leftist. That is deconstructionist. It is not biblically grounded. There are those egalitarianists who don't agree with that statement. They say it's not under the law or it's not under the fall. Uh, But they, they argue that in church leadership, male and female can interact in almost every, they say every position to that. I disagree to that. I think the scriptures disagree and we may not be able to fully get into that. Uh, I'll just throw this out there that I do, I do not, I personally do not believe in female pastors. And I think it becomes especially anti-scriptural when it's a wife pastoring and the husband is not pastoring. Because now we have inverted the family. And how does the husband submit to his wife? She's the head of the church, but he's the head of the her. So how does that work? I understand there might be permission or grace should the husband, who is the pastor, die and the wife take over the church because she's been co-pastoring, in a sense, behind the scenes for 20 or 30 years. I, I can see a permission for that, but I will also add my judgment for a season permission for a season, because if we fall back to the biblical pattern of Deborah, the only national leader in Israel's history, she could only accomplish two out of the three jobs of a judge. She was not able to lead the people into war. So you see with female pastors, they might be able to judge, they might be able to teach the law, they might be able to adjudicate, but they won't have what it takes because they're not designed to, to lead a church into battles. So what they might can do at best is maintain, much like single mom homes are not God's perfect will. We do not mock or denigrate single moms, but everybody knows without the presence of a dad, those children suffer and they will spend a lot of time playing makeup the rest of their life. So what happens if a church is pastored by a woman its entire existence? How can she set an example for the men in her church? So again, this beyond the scope of this. I just want to throw that out there because this is a question that will arise. If you disagree, fine. The only way I've ever seen it happen with any grit is when a woman begins to step outside her God-ordained role and become very abrasive, very gritty, and, and if I can use the term, butch. Enough said. Complementarianism. The belief or doctrine that the male and female genders were created separate and distinct, yet with meaningful and purposed assignments. So let's read that definition again, because it sounds like Bible. The belief or doctrine that the male and female genders were created separate and distinct, 
yet with meaningful and purposed assignments. We're created different, distinct, but with equally important roles. The genders being separate and distinct in their creation were then designed to complement each other, hence complementarianism, working together in unity to accomplish what, God, what couldn't be fulfilled alone. Working together in unity to accomplish what couldn't be fulfilled alone. And of course, complementarianism really refers to the marriage, but it does have implications beyond marriage. Gender roles in the beginning. The egalitarian argument that gender roles are a result of the curse is easily disproven. As we covered in these first two lessons, gender roles were assigned by God before the fall. Before the fall, gender roles were assigned. Here is the man. He has the vision. He has the garden. You guard, keep, and protect it. By the way, you need a helper. Let me make woman. She's going to be a helper suitable for you. The, the whole gender and the whole gender role was created and set in motion before the fall. So the, the argument that it's a curse is ludicrous and biblically ignorant. As we saw in the last lesson, both Old and New Testaments affirm the theological significance of the order and technique which, by which mankind was created. Man being formed, we saw the distinction there, formed like with clay. He was formed first, then the woman was built and that is to build a city. And woman was the first thing man, excuse me, woman was the first thing God ever built. Man was about the 19th thing God formed. So you ladies are very, very, very special and unique in your creation, different from us. God formed every animal first, then he formed man. And then the first thing he ever built was woman. So it's very different. And really, I'm hearing it said and echoed more and more, but I like the statement. There's nothing more anti-woman than feminism. Because it wants to take the uniqueness of a woman's creation and design and force her to be like a man, which she was never built to be like. You ought to be what God built you to be. Why would a Lamborghini want to be a Chevy? I mean, really, us men, we're like government-assisted Chevys, just rolling off the assembly line by a bunch of, you know, unionists. And here we got, we're married. God gave us this Lamborghini or this Ferrari, this Bugatti. And some woke professor comes along and tells her, you need to be like a GM. And she's like, you know, I should. I'm so oppressed. I am so oppressed. I'm so, they treat me inferior. Let me be honest. You don't treat a Bugatti the way you treat a Chevy. Just take that Chevy off of jumps. Just run it through the mud. But you're going to baby and care for that Bugatti because it's pristine. It's gorgeous. The fit and finish is beyond anything Chevy could ever spell. It's exquisite. V12 engine, 0 to 60 with horsepower in three seconds. I mean, why would you want to be a GM when God made you to be a Bugatti or a Ferrari or a Lamborghini? What a pack of lies sold to our young women by professors and social media. And yet, journalists also say, look at how beautiful this woman is. So in one regard, they want you to act like a man, but they want you to try to look like a supermodel. The world is so delusional so confused. Don't follow them. Amen. Amen. Recall that the hermeneutical principle of law first mentioned teaches us 
that this is a significant detail, the difference between being formed and being built. The Genesis account also specifically reveals that she was built to be a helper to her husband to whom God had given the vision and assignment. So let's look at this, review the gender role again from the beginning. Man or the husband was formed and then given the vision. So men are the visionaries of their home. This is difficult for our American women. They grow up, they catch the American culture. They got to go get a degree, maybe a master's, maybe a PhD. I'm not against any of those, neither is God. But if you're going to be married, you have to be able to submit all of that to the husband's vision. And if it doesn't line up with the husband's vision, what are you going to do? We need to be teaching our daughters that if you're going to be married in the eyes of God and with God's blessing, you've got to be prepared to find the calling as a helper of the family. I ask you not to lock down on me. I ask you not to sit down. I know I'm cross-plowing your feminist proclivities. You have been in America since the 1960s. But our culture has lied to us and said, you need to have a vision for your life. No, you need to God's vision. You need to have God's vision for your life. You need to get God's permission to go to college. You need to get God's permission to get that degree. Because what happens if you decide to repent, God gives you a husband, and all of a sudden you want babies. And you're going to say this because I've heard it so many times. You get that first baby and you say, I was made to be a mother. The world told you you were made to be a woke professor, to have your own CEO company, to design your own clothing line, and to run the world in stilettos. <laughs> Until all of a sudden you realize it's not fulfilling and you want, you want a baby. Well, nobody's going to come within 10 feet of you because you're so mean. <laughs> Got to keep moving here. Woman or the wife was then built to help with the vision and fill in all the gaps. And there are many. All the gaps lacking in the man's vision fulfillment plan. I know I need to get over there. And I start moving and my wife has to come and like just do everything. <laughs> but she said, where are we going? And I don't know if she really wants to know because it means she's going to do a lot of the work. We're going over here. All right. And then her gifting activates and we go where I know we need to go, but she has to help me do everything to get there. That's one of the ways she's way more infinitely built than me because she has that ability to adapt. And there's, you just never know what she's going to pull out of her life or out of her being, out of her grace to help me do what I've called to do. I think you can see biblically how it is totally backwards for a man to live to chase his wife's vision. And that's why you young ladies, you got to be careful. You don't fall into this wokery. I like the new term woke tartary, where you think you have a vision for your life and you're going to marry some guy that wants to follow behind you. Because you may want that now, but when it really works in your marriage, you're going to be miserable because he's not going to be the man you realize you need him to be. He's going to be whipped and he's probably just going to detach from his mama's breast and latch onto yours. And you don't want a man like that. Adam, who had previously named every animal, then named his wife and he called her Eve. I think we missed the significance of that. God entrusted Adam to name every animal and whatever it was called, that's what it was. Then, not that he's naming his wife as an animal, but he calls her Eve, meaning the mother of all living things. Even her name defines her gendered assignment. She was made to be a mother. And I'm telling you, so all you mamas have said the same thing, I'm sure. You held that baby in the, in the delivery room or after a month or two, and you're like, I, I was made to do this. 
I was made to do this. It activates something in you that the university or the high school wanted to strip out of you. And you don't get it. I've seen some of you had on a career track till you get that first baby. And then you say, Pastor, I just want to stay home and have four more of these. Because that's what God made you to be. Not that you can't have a career. We'll look at the Proverbs 31 woman shortly. But you can't have everything at once. Our society tells you that you should and that there's something wrong with you if you don't. You're not designed to have everything at once. There are different stages of your life and recognize them. Biblical gender uh, distinctions. Let us examine a list of biblical gender distinctions. This list is compiled from both Old and New Testament, before and after the cross. If egalitarianists are correct in their doctrine, we should not be able to find any New Testament gendered assignments. I just, I'm sorry, as I read this, I feel so stupid having to read some of these sentences. But our society has become this degenerate in its reasoning. Look at the book of Proverbs. The book of wisdom provides many observations into the will of God for feminine design. So maybe this will help ladies and men to look for something in your wife. First point, a righteous woman or a wife is described as having grace, the grace and gentleness of a loving deer and a graceful doe. That's how a woman of righteousness is described. Not a pit bull, not a butch. Um, not a seagull. When I was in the secular world, we talked about seagull management. Seagull management is someone who flies in, squawks at everything, poops all over everything, then flies out. <laughs> Women are not designed to be seagulls. And men, you should never marry a seagull. She comes home, she complains about everything, she just poops all over everything, and then she goes her way. But the Bible calls her a loving deer and a graceful doe. Not even a buck, because you know what? She's not confused about her gender. We've all seen deer. They're graceful. They're beautiful. They're quiet. Right, deer hunters? You have to really listen for them. And you always get mad when you think it's a deer coming and it's a squirrel. And you think, how can a 150-pound deer make no noise and that little five-ounce squirrel sound like an army tromping through the woods? More than one deer hunter in their life has decimated a squirrel with a 30-06 just for confusing him. Plus, he just wanted to see what a 30-06 would do to a squirrel. Nothing but a tail left. By contrast, the strange woman is described as being loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. So here's how strange women act. We don't want to be that. We don't want to marry those. Loud and stubborn. That does sound like the American woman. It was the Guess Who, the Canadian band who wrote the song American Woman. Stay away from me. Smartest thing ever came out of Canada. <laughs> A boisterous and loud woman is called foolish. Pastor Kenneth Vaughn described her as the loudest woman in the restaurant. We've all been there and seen those. Now, you can be quiet in a restaurant and be boisterous and loud in your heart. So just because you know how to cut, keep your mouth quiet doesn't mean you're not loud or boisterous. We're talking about gendered role assignments from the book of Proverbs. Uh, I don't know if do we don't like these. Maybe we want to flush the book of Proverbs or just cherry pick it like secular theologians. I like this verse. 
Proverbs 11:16 says, "A gracious woman retains honor." Another translation would say, "A humble woman stays anointed." Gracious, humble, meek. We understand it. Women are the fairer sex. They're, they're designed to be softer. We want their features softer. We want their hair different than our hair. They have less body hair than men, praise the Lord. You don't want to be snuggling with Sasquatch on your honeymoon night. <laughs> a beautiful woman without discretion is like a gold ring in a pig's nose. So she can be gorgeous, but if she lacks discretion, which means she's mouthy and crude and crass, you can't even hardly see the beauty for the huge grossness. And then you're honestly wondering, how can the two be together? Because here you're looking at this fat hog and this beautiful little gold ring. The beauty's minuscule compared to the grossness of the rest of it. And keep in mind, to the Jew, the pig was a disgusting animal. They didn't look at a pig and say, oink, oink, bacon, bacon. They said, unclean and too disgusting to even butcher. And so the, the lack of discretion in a woman, that means she's mouthy, opinionated, shares everything, gross, crass, crude, that even if she's gorgeous, all you can see beside that little gold ring is this gross, unclean, unfit for consumption beast. 12.4 says, a woman, a virtuous woman, excuse me, a worthy wife is a crown for her husband, but a disgraceful woman is like cancer in his bones. So wives, uh, you can easily become a cancer to the bones of your husband if you are disgraceful and dishonorable. So what does that look like, Pastor? You tell me. Disrespectful, mouthy, sassy, rude, always picking a fight. I, I, Proverbs 31 gives permission for strong women. But even a strong leader doesn't fight or argue with his leadership. Like, I'm a strong leader, but I don't ever talk back to authority in my life. I don't pick fights with them. So a disgraceful, cancerous woman is one who picks fights with her leadership. Even if I disagree with Pastor Okwokwo or disagree with Pastor Vaughn or disagree with Pastor Trey or disagree with Pastor Darren or disagree with Dr. Barclay, I don't pick fights. I'm not going to argue. I'm not a cancer to my relationships. So this can be maybe you. Maybe you've become a cancer to your marriage. Violating 1 Peter 3. Every wise woman builds her house, but the foolish plucketh it down with her hand. So here's a gendered role that the wife builds her home. Proverbs 31 tells us what that looks like. It means getting up early, going to bed late. If you're going to build a life, ladies, you can't sleep in till 1030. And for you parents, God have mercy on you by allowing your children to sleep in till 1030, 11, 12 o'clock. I once had a roommate in college. He would sleep in until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Brilliant guy. I don't know what he was doing, needing that much sleep. But he regularly would come out of his bedroom asleep 2 or 3 in the afternoon. I don't get that. A contentious, brawling, and angry woman is wholeheartedly condemned by Proverbs. Contentious, brawling, and angry. Her naggings are likened unto the leaking roof. Her naggings work to tear her house apart, we might say. I also liken her unto Chinese water torture, but I don't think you can use the word Chinese anymore because that might be racist. <laughs> her naggings are like drip, 
drip. Anybody ever had a roof leak or you could hear water leaking somewhere in your house? You could have no peace. None. Because where's the damage? Where is it coming from? When will the rain stop? How quickly can I get up there? What's it doing to my sheetrock? What's it doing to my floor joists? Men think this way. Plus, there's just the irritating drip, drip. So for those of you who are, have been like wokeified and you're under 35, there used to be this thing called Chinese water torture where you would tie somebody down and just drip water right there on their forehead and drive them insane. The continuous naggings of a woman are like Chinese water torture. You must hate him. Why else would you torture him? I know because you have no peace and you're a miserable human being. Her, her husband is advised to take refuge in the corner of the attic or maybe just in the wilderness. And I like it because those two verses are the same chapter. And it's like Solomon says, go dwell in the rooftop. And then four or five verses later, he says, no, that's not far enough away. Leave that sprawling mansion and go live in the wilderness because at least there's more peace out there. You're awfully quiet on me. You guys wanting to burn a bra or something? Thank you, ma'am. I feel like it's pretty good. Like, I think about how American women are, and I look at my two daughters, and I don't want them to be anything like that. I know what it takes to succeed in the kingdom. I've pastored for 15 years now. I see what healthy marriages look like and don't look like, and I know what my daughters need to be. So maybe I'm just teaching this for their sake. Because I want their husbands to be blessed, and I want my grandkids to be normal. The earth quakes and cannot endure when a hateful woman finally gets married. Proverbs 30, 23. King James says odious. That's a woman who's full of spite and hatred. She will never help her husband fulfill God's vision. Why? She's hateful. She's, she's bitter. And we don't know why. But then you finally couple her with a man. She won't be able to do anything because her hate will not be absolved by a marriage. Her hate will not be pacified. We don't get married to fix problems. We get married to build the kingdom. Her children will be emotional pawns in her search for peace. Well, maybe if you move there, I'll have some peace. If you move there, I'll have some peace. If you move here, it's selfish. So that's why we teach on magnifying your singlehood and mastering who you are as a single person so that you can be as whole and complete as possible before you get married. The whole doctrine is called complementarianism, not completarianism. When you get married, you don't complete your person. You don't look at your wife and say, you complete me. Hogwash. You're complete in Christ. So you look at your spouse and say, you compliment me. You have strengths I don't, and I have strengths you don't. We fit together. God knew what he was doing putting us together. But if you're both broken people, it's going to be a horrific train wreck after the honeymoon wears off. I've, I've dealt with folks who had issues on the honeymoon. That's not a good sign. Proverbs 31, the famed Proverbs 31 woman, who we should compare to Proverbs chapter 9 because it hits some of the same points but describes the woman there as wisdom. Wisdom buildeth her house. Wisdom hath sent out her servants. Wisdom hath brought in her food. Sounds just like the Proverbs 31 woman. So the Proverbs 31 woman is a woman of extreme wisdom. Not the world's wisdom, but God's wisdom. She demonstrates the epitome of biblical femininity. Again, we'll say it. There's nothing more anti-woman than American feminism. 
Because it looks at a woman and says, act like a man. Why? Why? Why be what you weren't made to be? Not only does the woman of righteousness care for her home as a governess, many of her described roles are gendered and feminine. Oh, my goodness. What will we ever do if a woman acts like a woman? Where we're finally getting to the place now where we want men to act like women. For the longest time, we didn't attack men or masculinity, but now we have men painting their fingernails. That is demonic and disgusting. We even have some modern worship leaders, men who are painting their fingernails. If you see them, and I don't, I, there's one guy I can see, I don't know his name, just pitch his album, text him, and ask him, You want me to cast out that homosexual spirit? Now, it's one thing if you fall asleep and your girls are playing princess and you wake up with spangly sparkly because your kids are playing a joke on you. Ha, 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 kids. That's funny. Woman, get me the fingernail polish remover. It's another thing when you intentionally did it. There's something perverse, perverse, perverse about a man painting his fingernails, especially when it's worship leaders. What kind of spirit are they channeling? making money off local churches. There was one, he just received his Dove Award this year and he had painted fingernails. Gendered and feminine roles. The Proverbs 31 woman finds wool and flax and works on the spinning wheel. I don't think I've ever seen a man sit and spin. Actually, one of the things the Babylonians did to denigrate the Jews is they made the men sit at spinning wheels. That's what the prophets tell us in the Old Testament. Took the men to put them at the spinning wheels. What a way to emasculate the courage of a nation. I'm not against men tailors. I, I understand that. I actually, in high school, was really good with the sewing machine. I made my own rock climbing equipment and caving equipment. I can use a sewing machine, but I don't paint my nails. <laughs> she brings her family's food from afar and plying trips to the market. Women still have that grace today. Some of you wives, most of you, you know what three grocery stores to hit to make your money go the furthest. I get this from Aldi. I get this from Kroger. I get this from Food Line. I get this from Food City. Then I got to go by Walmart. Sounds like a Proverbs 31 woman. If it's a man, if they don't have it, I don't need it, and I don't care what it costs. <laughs> bacon? My wife sent me to Walmart the other day, bought bacon. I bought home like an eight-pound pack of bacon or something. I said, this was 15 bucks. Does that seem like a lot? She said, a lot of bacon. I'm like, well, who doesn't like bacon? I think we cooked the whole thing, stunk our house and our clothes up. Men don't do this. We just say, if they don't have it, we don't need it. We'll just buy what they have. If they don't have it, we'll do without. Not a woman. She's like, I need this from Aldi. I need that from Kroger. This has the best deal over here. Their vegetables are cheaper. Their meat is cheaper. You, guys, you ladies get it. Men don't think that way. It's not our grace. That's a gendered God-ordained assignment. Men never think that way, not unless they have painted fingernails. She arises before everyone and prepares breakfast. Sounds like a mama. She manages her household's female domestics. She's dealing with the female servants because it wouldn't be proper for her husband to. He deals with the men's servants who are out in the field. She clothes her household. That's every mama I've ever met. I have never once ever bought my kids anything clothing-wise. 
But you go to my kids' wardrobe, there's like a hundred clothing. It's arranged by size and season. We get packages from Zulily at this office every day of the week because mama finds something. It's so cute. Like they're never going to wear it. And we give some of you guys clothing that she bought our kids who don't even have the tags taken off of them. The only person my wife does not clothe is me. Sometimes she wishes she could because I wear stuff from 25 years ago. She says, that's horrible. And I say, I don't care. It still fits. You should be so blessed that your husband can wear the same stuff he did in college. 25 years since I graduated college, the only thing that has expanded is my intellect. It's a little bit of a lie. I used to be a 32, now I'm a 33. Sometimes I might push 34. But I like to say it's because I do lunges and my butt's gotten big. The Bible says she makes her own bedspreads. And I add she probably has 25 pillows with those bedspreads. I've never known a husband to pick out his bedding. Not unless he had painted fingernails. Any of you men pick out the bedding of your house? Buy the comforter and the pillows? Because you don't care. Ronaldo. Ronaldo. Breaking more molds, man. All right. All right. Thank God this is an average. And you... I haven't ever seen your bedding. I, it better be manly. All right. What's that, Cephas? <laughs> Does it please Miss Sicilianne? At then, then, hey, we'll, we'll let that pass. She dresses in fine linen and purple, not dicky overalls. There's a difference in how women dress and how men dress. Because there's something in a woman, unless it's leached out by woke tartary or public schools, girls pick flowers, boys stomp on them. I've never seen a boy go pick flowers and put it in his hair unless he grew up in Hawaii. It's in us. It's just in us to be this way. She speaks with wisdom, grace, and kindness. There's a, there's a grace and a sweetness and a poise about her. Even when we were in, at Bible school, Dr. Sheets, who was our dean, she was like a grandmother. And even when I got in trouble, I was afraid, but not too much. And she'd always say, don't make me get after you with the wet noodle, young man. Because what's that really going to do? But you, just knowing mama, Dr. Sheets, you just didn't want to fail her. And if she had to look at you and you knew you'd failed her, that's all it took. Now, if it was a man, he'd chew you up one down the other, spit you out, and you'd say, yes, sir, you're right. I could do better. You just didn't want to fail, Dr. Sheets. She carefully watches over everything in her household. Mamas do that. Sometimes it's hard to date a wife because you're out in town and she's thinking about everything. I mean, even this morning, we're getting ready and my wife is thinking about everything she has to do this afternoon in between services, also knowing we have special meetings through Wednesday and homeschool. Her mind is always thinking about everything in the household. I wake up thinking about who's coming to church today. Is that message ready? Do I have enough notes prepared for regular service? Are we having guests? What do I do for the book this week? What do I do for the guest ministers with Dr. Jacobs? That's what I'm thinking about. I don't think about my house at all. I just don't because I have a wife who is the governess. 
She frees me up to go further. If I have to do her job and my job, my job doesn't get accomplished. In addition to be a homemaker, to being a homemaker, she's also a successful businesswoman. Her entrepreneurship is multifaceted. She dabbles in real estate, Proverbs 31 tells us. She dabbles in agriculture, Proverbs 31 tells us. She manufactures wares to sell at market. She stays up late and gets up early, and you will never be a successful woman if you don't do the same. You can't go to bed at 9 o'clock and wake up at 10 a.m. and accomplish anything. She makes sure her dealings are profitable. And I add this, lazy businesses don't succeed. You can't do the bare minimum with a business and prosper it. I like what somebody observed. They said, Walmart's putting all the mom and pop shops out of business. And they made the observation, well, Walmart was a mom and pop shop until they got their act together. Until you're willing to put in 90 hours a week on your business, it won't go anywhere. So if God's called you to have a business, he's called you to put 90 hours a week into that thing to get that thing launched and up and running. If you don't want that kind of work, then what you need to do is go work for somebody else who will pay you for 40 hours a week. If you run your family business 40 hours a week, you won't have one. Someone who's willing to work harder will come and take it from you. And you'll probably have to consult with that person because they know what to do and you don't. Most importantly, at the end of the day, and after all her success, her family still loves and adores her. That's something the world's successful women don't have. They don't have a family that loves them, children that adore them, and a husband that can't wait to see her. Unlike many confused women today, she laughs without fear of the future. That's probably one of the strongest passages in Proverbs 31. She's a woman who laughs without any fear. How many women today can say that? For all her successes, she laughs without fear of the future. After laboring to care for her home, her children, her servants, her business endeavors, and her husband, she's described as a virtuous and capable woman. Now, something I wanted to point out here, I should have written it, for those who just download these in the future, when you look at the trajectory of the Proverbs 31 woman, she starts off with menial labor, seeking wool and flax. That's what you send children out to do. It's low work. Then she set the spinning wheel. That's also child's work. And then you see over the course of those 17 verses, her responsibilities increase, 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 increase. It's also inferred that her husband sees promotion, 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 so that by the time she has raised kids and she has servants under her, now she has property, she has agriculture, now she's selling wares, she's going down to the merchant seas and, and selling stuff to the ships. Her life has, has been on a trajectory from being a young mother doing menial stuff to now she outfits everybody, has people underneath her, and her husband's a local politician. Both of them grow over the trajectory of that passage. Nobody starts off on top. Amen. So if you look at it, you'll see an increase in responsibility and maturity. So it, it answers what we hear that you can have everything. You just can't have it all at once. Right, we got to get moving here. New Testament. The New Testament teaches us who we are in Christ. It also reveals what we have been redeemed from and redeemed to. Let us examine the epistles in search of gender and marriage roles. The New Testament addresses men and women separately from time to time, indicating a distinction in their roles and God's expectations from each based on their respective roles. So that statement right there alone undermines some of the leftist egalitarianism, which says that gender roles are part of the curse 
And we've been redeemed from any gender roles through the cross of Calvary. If the New Testament addresses men and women separately and ascribes to them different responsibilities, that concept is moot. And if you know your Bible, you should be able to be thinking about these off the top of your head. So here's some bullet points. Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. That's found in Ephesians 5.22, Colossians 3.18, Titus 2.5, 1 Peter 3.1, and 1 Peter 3.5. That's five times the New Testament says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. So we see who is the head of the marriage. It never commands husbands to submit to their wives. Now, we do subject to them, which means we do bounce things off of them. We get their input. They are the governess that helps us manage everything in our life. We need their input. We need the practicality of their insight. But at the end of the day, the decision-making rests with us. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Ephesians 5.23. So here we see two different genders with two different roles in the marriage. So we have already undermined half of egalitarianism in terms of theology. Wives submit to their husbands. Husband is the head of the wife. Okay. Husbands, though, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So here's the balance. We might be the head of our wife, but we're to love her just as Christ did, and we're always giving ourselves for her. She's never commanded to lay down her life and give herself for us, but she'll do it anyway because that's part of her design to always want to know how's the family going. I got to make sure my husband's fed, my kids are fed. The wives will work themselves to death when their husbands are deadbeats. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Here's another gendered and sex-specific role. Love them and don't be bitter against them because I guess husbands deal with bitterness a lot. Maybe because they don't behave the way they want them to probably because they don't treat them the way they ought to be treated. If you're bitter against your wife because she's not treating you the way you want, ask yourself, are you treating her the way she needs? The wife needs to see that she reverence her husband. So here's another gender role in the marriage covenant. These are all in the marriage covenant. You don't, you don't need to practice these things outside of marriage. Practice them with your boss, reverence him, obey him, your professor, the police officer, anybody in authority you submit to, anybody in authority. If they're not in authority over you, then they're your equal. I don't submit or play games with my equals. We have respect, but I don't go submitting to them. That's weird. Older women are assigned to discipling the younger women. Here is a sex gendered specific role for women in the New Testament church. Just like the Proverbs 31 woman takes care of her handmaidens, here the older women in the church, this goes for all of you older senior trained women, you're commanded by God to find younger women and disciple them. I don't disciple younger women. The only younger women I might disciple outside of my home would be my secretary, but she's in my office all the time with my wife under my office, literally, and maybe Kylie, but I'm always on the phone with Kale and Kylie. We're always meeting together. So there's never any of this weird alone stuff. The reason men don't disciple women is sex. I think that's pretty simple. Well, if I don't disciple her, nobody will. Then let nobody disciple her because it's a trap. Let's go back and read Proverbs. She might be the strange woman who forgetteth the God of her youth. 
So what do we disciple? Ladies, what do you disciple the younger women? And this assumes you've mastered it yourself. You disciple the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. If you don't love either, you shouldn't be talking to anybody. To be discreet, that is self-control. That's an answer to Proverbs' condemnation of hatefulness and boisterousness. We have to teach younger women to be discreet. That means you don't go complaining to everybody in the ladies' restroom about how bad your husband is. That's not discretion. That's a pig wearing a gold nose ring. We teach the younger women, or older ladies, teach the younger women to be chaste or respectable. To be keepers at home. <sighs> Clutch your pearls if you wear them and you're not Harry Styles. There's something perverse about boys wearing pearls. Unless you're the Sultan of Brunei and you came in on a train of camels, you don't wear pearls or paint your nails. But if you see all the popular, Harry Styles is this British guy, barely can act his way out of a wet paper bag. He has taught the young generation to dress like a woman. He wears pearls. He has painted fingernails. He sings in dresses. He calls himself bisexual, but he always ends up in bed with the most beautiful women in Hollywood. So I'd like to see him date a dude. Otherwise, to me, it's just cheap talk because it's trendy. Hashtag LGBT trendy. Gay is trendy right now. But unfortunately, for many, it's going to stick. And it won't be a trend they grow out of. So Harry Styles calls himself bisexual, but I only see him in the headlines with the most beautiful women in the world. Never is he seen dating some dude. But he doesn't have a problem wearing pearls, pearl necklaces, painted fingernails, and wearing a dress. Mamas, don't let your boys grow up to wear pearl necklaces. Let them grow up to be cowboys instead. They get to shoot stuff then. Be keepers at home. The governess administrating its success. To be obedient to husbands. These are gendered roles assigned by God. Women adorn themselves beautifully with gold and fancy hair, but of more importance is their inward adorning, which the New Living Translation says, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet attitude, which is so precious to God. So precious to God. It's not important to our culture. It's important to God. The adorning of unfading beauty, of a gentle and quiet attitude. doesn't mean you don't talk. doesn't mean you don't preach. doesn't mean you don't sing. doesn't mean you don't prophesy. It just means it's a gentle attitude. Husbands are to live with their wives according to knowledge or with intelligent recognition, adapting to their strengths, their wives' strengths and weaknesses and accommodating their needs. Husbands, you have to accommodate what your wife has need of because you're expecting her to do the same thing. Husbands are to honor their wives in two ways, as being equal, excuse me, unequal in vessel design because the wife is the weaker vessel. And we are to honor our wives as being equal, equal and unequal, equal as heirs together of the grace of life joined together in Christ. So we honor our wives on two measures, unequal and equal. Unequal in vessel design, but equal as heirs of the grace of life. Female leadership, we got to run. I'm late already. Holy smokes. In response to some hardline complementarianists we hold that, uh, who hold that women cannot teach or speak at all in assembly, the following scriptural examples and questions should be considered in light of the three above verses. Uh, let's just run through this real quick. If a woman is a prophetess, to whom does she prophesy if she can't speak? 
Are women only? The New Testament gift of prophecies for the edification of the entire body of Christ. The Jews hold to seven Old Testament prophetesses, Sarah, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Abigail, Huldah, and Esther. Though there's another one. Isaiah was married to a prophetess. I don't know if I would count Esther as a prophetess. There's no indication she prophesied, but that's what the Jews hold to. Miriam, the prophetess, led the women in singing and dancing to celebrate the destruction of Pharaoh's army. Deborah was a prophetess, the Bible says, in the first national leader of Israel. She's classified as a judge leading Israel in the time before the development of Israel's monarchy. The judges had a threefold role, teach the law, adjudicate legal decisions, lead in military incursions against enemies. Deborah's leadership was atypical. She called herself a mother over Israel. She didn't call herself a leader. She said she was a mother. So she recognized the uniqueness of it. Uh, she likened her Leadership to being a national mother, she only performed two out of the three responsibilities that define the shoftim. That is, she taught the law and held court. The military battle was later led by Barak. Bathsheba wrote Proverbs 31. Here's a woman writing scripture that we preach today. We could even make the argument, even to today, we still preach through her mouth, or she preaches through ours. And the Bible, what the verse 1 says, that chapter is the prophecy Bathsheba taught her son. So here she is prophesying to the king. So here she is teaching a man, her son. Huldah was a prophetess in the days of Josiah the king. She prophesied and gave directions to the king. Isaiah's wife was also a prophetess. Anna was a prophetess who saw the Christ child. She spoke of Jesus to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. I guess that would be men too. Uh, how about Acts 2, quoting... Um, the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your sons that identify as daughters shall prophesy. And on my servants and on my hand, uh, servants that identify as handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. Here we have daughters and handmaidens prophesying, God pouring out of his spirit and they prophesy. Now, remember, there are some I, I'm a complementarianist, but there are those hardliners that say women shouldn't talk at all in a church or in a service to which we make the argument, then why would God pour out of his spirit upon women to exercise the gift of prophecy, which is for the edification of the body, if they can't speak to the body? One of the promises of the last days is that men and women will be filled with the spirit of God to prophesy. Who will the women prophesy to? Philip the evangelist had four daughters that were known for prophesying. Who did they prophesy to? The first person commissioned with the gospel after the resurrection was Mary Magdalene. She was sent to the brethren to preach the gospel. The great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel, is given to both genders, not just to men. Who are women to preach the gospel to? Only women and children? Phoebe was a deaconess at the church in Sincrea. In the home, the Bible says that mothers have a law for their children and that we do well to obey it. So this could be a 10-week lesson on egalitarianism versus complementarianism. I just wanted to give you some highlights because we're studying biblical sexuality in light of everything that's going on in the earth today. We need to be assured of our foundation because the young generation doesn't have a clue what they stand on. The word is forever settled under heaven, which is why we affirm it. It is my hope that this lesson has answered questions while reaffirming God's design and plan for his finest creation, male and female humans. We've been created by different means and given different roles, but with a unified goal, and that is glorifying the God of Israel. Amen.